to forging of indignant Dreaming about a premiership cup We love our clubs but they never win Two flags in one hundred years That shit house if you think we'll be insightful Clever or just well researched We're here to say that's not the case We'll just go out and wing it We are two guys, one Hello and welcome to Two Guys One Cup Summer Edition. My name is Charlie Clawson and this series is my club. And this week my guest is Dave Thornton, comedian, star of radio and TV and Geelong Cats fan. Um, I don't like Geelong and it's an unreasonable dislike of Geelong because I sort of see them as the mirror version of St Kilda. You know, they are what I want St Kilda to be. Powerful, organised, multiple premierships, but... I was willing to put that aside to talk to Dave and got some real insight, some humanity to a Geelong supporter, found out more about what it's like uh, going for a team in the Geelong bubble. So ladies and gentlemen, here's Dave Thornton. Dave, look, of all the teams that I have an unreasonable chip in my shoulder about, <laughs> I mean, I know people often tick off like, you know, Hawthorne or, or, or West Coast or Collingwood, but... I have a chip on my shoulder about the Cats, and it's nothing to do with the history of the club or your playing list, which I've always respected. It has to do with uh, a Wizard Cup night grand final in 2003 or 2004, I think it was, where we beat you. And the discussion at the time was, <laughs> who has the better young list, St Kilda or Geelong, St Kilda or Geelong? And everyone's like, well, it's got to be the Saints, right? If the Wizard Cup teaches us one thing, it's a precursor for future success. But then the Cats went on to have like get three flags and we obviously didn't get one. Do you sympathise with my predicament or is it just like tough luck? You know, I was thinking about this before we went on the podcast that it was a sliding doors Mm. moment, those mid-2000s. I mean, A, for anyone listening to this and doesn't understand AFL, the Wizard Cup in itself is a hilarious description. (laughs) You're probably finding the sport foreign enough and then you're like, no, no, we play something called a Wizard Cup. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do remember cause what was it? 2004, 2005 when I believe both of us got beaten in the prelim. Did we not? I yes. can't remember who was in the yeah. granny. We got beaten by Sydney mm-hmm. and Nick Davis. And then they beat and us. Then who were you beaten by? In the, yeah, we got beaten by Sydney in the prelim. Yeah. And it really was cause I remembered we had a similar trajectory at that stage. You're right. We're young lists coming through. I felt like. It was 06 for us when things were looking not so great, where mm. the guys were drinking the Kool-Aid. And I think they did those, <laughs> what are they called? Those um, uh, where you have to stand in front of the entire club. Is that like the leading teams? Like the kind of, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is a side note. I do know an ex-AFL player because I think the whole thing is they tell you what to keep doing, what to stop doing and what to start doing. That's the major thing that they want to break down of what you are accomplishing and I do know an ex-AFL player who said he did that then with his partner and it was her turn to go and she had 45 minutes of roasting him and he went okay maybe we'll stop well it's an interesting people forget about the cats because the cats have been so successful and played finals you know you've only missed out on finals what three or four times in the past 15 years or something like that but people forget that that 2006 season was a huge turning point you were struggling, you know, people wanted to get rid of Bomber Thompson, the board stuck by him, and then, like, it just all came together. Now, I think, you know, my when I first sort of get started getting into football was, 
you know, around about the time when the Cats were always getting into grand finals but never winning them. You know, they were the perennial bridesmaid, the Gary Ablett, Billy Brownless kind mm. of era. And so was there a feeling – because I know that's how I feel about the Saints now. Like after the 2000s and, you know, getting to – you know, I saw three grand finals. I've seen four grand finals in my lifetime for not one victory, but, you know, particularly in the 2000 era. Was there a sense – of, you know, mid-2000s, it's shit, this is going to start happening again. What happened in the 90s where we just keep making finals, get made two grand finals, we couldn't win one, it's going to happen again? Yeah, it was strange psychologically because I remember when that new side was coming through. So in the 2000s, they're recruiting. It's a whole new team. It's all young lads. They're all coming through. And I remember having conversations with my mum on the phone. She's like, of course they lost again. Of course in the last three minutes we let it go. And there wasn't any patience, I felt like, from me and my mates in the early 2000s when this young club was trying to break the back of those things. And you'll see it now, say, you know, with Brisbane. You know, in Brisbane a few seasons ago, they just couldn't get it. But then there's that season where they go, no, no, now they know how to finish those last three minutes. And we had zero patience for it as a fan club. It's like, <laughs> oh, we're just breeding more guys to lose right at the end. <laughs> and I don't know how psychologically, like I remember a mate of mine said he he was drunk at the Belmont Hotel and Paul Chapman was there. And my other mate told me, he said, he just absolutely ripped Paul Chapman a new one, told him how shit he was. And this was 2004. And they said, Paul Chapman, to his credit, was like, oh, well, you know, fair enough. And he'd obviously been schooled enough to not think, I'm going to clock this guy in the face because I'm significantly larger than him and way more athletic. He just took it on the chin, they said, and he was like, it was very diplomatic. And then, you know, this guy a few years later now lords all over him. But so, I mean, that was what they had to go through. And those poor young guys have got the weight of an entire city who not only do they think they're losers, but everyone, if not in the state and the country, thinks they're losers. Like, we're Sleepy Hollow. We're the second city. We're just holding on to this shit idea of a city and a team. <laughs> and so how did you get into the Cats? Are you from that area around kind of Geelong? Is that why you barrack for them? Yeah, Charlie. I couldn't get more boring suburban Geelong if I tried. That's exactly what it was. Middle of the road. Uh, so by birthright, I'm Geelong. But then... My parents are both immigrants and not – my mum surprisingly has gotten into sport as she's gotten older, but my father was a muso. He was British. He didn't care for Geelong, didn't care for football. I was never taken to the football. And none of his, mate, his mates are all musos. Some of them liked footy, but they never took me to the footy. I had a very strange relationship with it growing up because uh, it was 89 when we got into the granny. I remembered – that's my first memory of football being this thing. Like I remember coming back from the South Bowen Swimming Centre, walking home with my mum and we didn't know these people, but this woman was out the front just watering her garden and her daughter burst the door open and said, we're on top of the ladder, we're on top of the ladder. Like it was the greatest thing that had ever occurred since the moon landing. And I was like, oh, this is a thing. And then I'm nine years old and watching the 89 grand final, all the balloons everywhere, you know, everyone's going off. This is going to change us and the sheer heartbreak that would then dictate the next decade. <laughs> and yeah, and it was a, it was a strange relationship because I, I, I then, um, and I don't know, I wanted to ask you about this. Did you play footy growing up? Yes. You did. And then did you, so why St Kilda, I'm sure your listeners know this, but then why St Kilda, did you grow up in that area? You grew up around yeah, the well, southeastern suburbs? Yeah, exactly. I, I was Bayside um, and my father uh, pick the Saints. I didn't realize that you could actually pick the team you wanted to barrack for. I assumed it was like getting, you know, it's like a surname, you know, or like any other hereditary condition, whoever your parents go for. Because I've got, I've come from a big Catholic family. There's like, you know, eight siblings 
and all of them are St Kilda supporters. And, you know, my uncle was a St Kilda supporter. So we are red, white and black the whole way through. Um, but I think being Bayside as well, uh, you know, kind of like I imagine being in Geelong where, you know, you make finals and everything goes blue and blue and white. That's what happens Bayside. Like you go down Ackland Street. So it wasn't a lot of kind of finals in the 80s for St Kilda support. But early 90s, I got a taste of what it's like to sort of be part of like the community in a club because we'd go to Moorabbin every week. So that's kind of how I got to the Saints. It was just sort of dictated um, from my parents. But I came into football the same era as you did. So I really started taking notice around 88, 89. And my memory of Geelong in those times, those Gary Ablett years was when Malcolm Blight took over, it felt to me, and this might be a child's memory, and if I check the stats, I might be wrong, but it felt like you would routinely beat teams by like 150 points. Like it wouldn't be uncommon that you would, you know, uh, you'd beat the game. And you know how you, in the old days they would have like the other team scores like A, B, C, D, right, written down the bottom of the screen. And there'd be Geelong score. And you'd be like, well, that's Geelong because it's like 17 goals, 11 points, you know, like 178 <laughs> versus Richmond, like three goals too or something like that. Did it feel like that to you? Yeah. I mean, I have only recently gone back over and had a look at those things and I think Bloody came in like that. He's like, you just score more goals than the other team. That's the job. And so you're right. They were these huge goals and there's a great podcast, The Greatest Season that was 93 yeah. and I went Fantastic all through podcast. it. podcast. It's amazing. Amazing, mate. And it talks about that was that sheer isolation football where it's just one out, you just deal with it. Guys are routinely kicking 120 goals <laughs> and everyone's going for it. And you think, yeah, that's that's good football. Like that is – and realising that's probably what came unstuck for us because the defenders like, as long as we get it up to the other side, we'll be fine. And then we just couldn't kick goals when it counted. Put bums on seats, didn't it? There was an elimination final between the Cats and the Saints in 91, uh, which was, you know, you had Stewie Lowe and Tony Lockett up one end and you had Gary Ablett and Billy Brownless down the other. And I was at that game. It was at VFL Park. And I remember it just being like – this is an insane amount of goals that it's been kicked. I think like Billy Brown has kicked nine, Plugger kicked eight. Or there was just it was just, it's hard to sort of when you think about the way footy's played now and zones and uh, you know you players very rare like defensive pressure. Very rarely do you get sort of like one on one contests. We were very spoiled to get into football or start taking interest in football in an era where there were so many superstar forwards in particular. Yeah, and it was. I mean, you, you know, you couldn't you couldn't walk around a schoolyard at Belmont High School where I went without a football being in the vicinity and someone climbing your back to go, yeah, but it! And that was, which I'm sure everyone was screaming Modra in Adelaide or Sumich at West Coast or whomever it is. And it was all the spearheads and all those guys. And it was also a time when I, I'm not here to say if there was performance enhancing drugs or not, but there were some pretty big boys as well. These absolute machines, which I mean, compared to now, now I think the body that they have is perfect. You've got to run, you've got to have strength, you've got to have agility. Mm. And you look back at when the eighties turned into the nineties and all that. And even in the early two thousands, you're like, there's some big bodies. Don't you reckon it's kind of similar to the way action movie stars changed between the eighties and the nineties, like in the eighties and early nineties, it was all Arnie and Sly and just these jacked up dudes. And then the Matrix happens and all of a sudden action heroes get all lithe and agile and stuff. And I reckon, like you watch the 89 Grand Final, which is such a brutal contest, but they're all meat axes. Like those players, like Dipper and Garriers, like they've got thighs, like, like ham hocks and the way they're just like smashing into each other. I, 
you know, I'm always an advocate for, uh, like, people romance the, you know, footy in the past and, you know, think it's getting too soft. I don't agree. Like, I reckon you watch the 89 grand final. I'm like, I think we should protect the head because there are so many collisions yeah. in that, which are like, I mean, Emma Race was on the show a few weeks ago and she's a big Hawk supporter and she said, like, if it, you know, if things had gone slightly differently, like Robbie Dippy Domenico could have died at the, end of the 89 grand final and we'd all look back at it very differently. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And not only that, but see, I have a very strange relationship with it as well because, like I said, my, my upbringing was uh, my parents didn't get me into it. It was just somehow through osmosis, it was around me. I was enveloped by it in Geelong. That in my teen years, I really didn't watch a lot of football. It was still there. There's still Friday night football. You're watching at home and still watch games. But I think, and I'm always interested with this with mates from a bigger city where it seems like, especially in Melbourne, there's a healthy relationship. You could have mates that were in the arts, but no, I go for the football and I do all this kind of stuff. When for me, I was a creative kid and footy was a really overbearing presence. Like the, the, there was the jocks <laughs> and I wasn't really there for the jocks. And I am the generation of basketball. So I found that a kind of, you know, that was my outlet for sport. So I kind of did pull away from football a bit during my teen years because it was kind of like, oh, do you want to listen to Nirvana or do you want to come with us and listen to Chisel and play for the South Bay and Swans, which seems to be my local suburban team. And I just wasn't in that group. So I, def- I kind of fell away from it a bit and was like, oh, yeah, this is all for the meatheads and the – I kind of thought I was a bit cool and, you know, um, not an emo, that's for sure, but <laughs> heading towards that area. And then strangely, I went overseas like so many people do when you're, you know, 2021, go to find yourself, be bitterly disappointing when you do. <laughs> and then you come back and go, this is my lot in life. And it was that Geelong team, the one that went on to win the premierships, that I started finding a kinship with because they were kids my age from my area. And it seemed to be a football that was, after that small break, just night and day, completely different to the stuff I grew up with. And I think that that was when things started to change as well, like going to the games wasn't as gnarly and as (laughs) threatening. I think we had almost identical journeys with football then because I was the same, way into it as a kid, you know, through my teens and then sort of mid to late teens heading into university, um, you know, grew a bit tired of it, sort of coinciding with losing the 97 grand final. I I think I was uh, just turned 20 when that happened. I was like, you know what? I think I can take a bit of a break from football. I moved to Sydney, so I got away from football. There wasn't a lot of AFL talk apart from the Swans up there. But then when I took an interest again was round about the time when you reconnected. But I think that I think it would be more unusual for someone to be like a died in the wool. If you're a fanatical like supporter of your team and you have been for, you know, like 30 plus years, I think you need to look at your life a little bit because I think you need to have some balance because unless your team, unless you're a Hawthorne supporter, in which case every three years you're getting a flag, there's going to be times, yeah. you know, and I know this better than anyone, where your team shit <laughs> and you need to, you need to just a mental health break. You need to sort of some separation to move away from the team because otherwise like, I mean, I'm trying to think when Geelong's last low period was and, and it would have to be 2006 really like because you've always been around thereabouts in the finals haven't you yeah I mean it was when the Ablett era was over that was the early 2000s it wasn't great I knew that but again I was overseas and I was just like all right they suck cool whatever I'm here um yes and I remembered six was when we went well what happened are are you guys (laughs) are you guys hitting the methamphetamine why is this why the wheels falling off and then um 
Yeah, and and then it, it did hit this patch, and it's very unusual. I mean, talking to Richmond fans, it feels very similar. Mm. It was like years and years of feeling like you're being defeated. I mean, our grand final wins were the other way round. Like I was there for the GWS Richmond game, and at halftime, I just went and drank, and I felt like that was us with Port Adelaide. Yeah, right. No one cared, and unless you're going for the team, you love it. Um, 09 uh, against you guys. Uh, was you know that was that was a more toe to toe one. Let's be honest. Pardon the pun, obviously with Matty Scarlett, but like you know, it was it was like that. And then eleven was very strange because you Collingwood had won the year before. We'd won the year before that, yeah. and there was a relative. I'd think it wasn't desperate. There wasn't a desperation in the stadium that I had felt before. Well, I think that it's the drought breaker that just sort of like heals all wounds for a time, isn't it? So two thousand and seven. Like that's the one where there was so much kind of anxiety going into that because oh, Geelong lose grand finals and then Port Adelaide were the only team to have beaten you that season or one of the few teams to have beaten you at home. And so it's like, well, they're going to, Port Adelaide will give it a real shot here. But then from like the very first bounce, it's like, I got to imagine that is the best grand final to go to, particularly as a drought breaker. One where you, at quarter time, you can just put your feet up and just soak it in. You don't have to worry about the nerves. Yeah, and I remembered afterwards, mates of mine from high school said, you've got to come down to Geelong, get the V-line and come down to Geelong. And I was very close to taking the V-line down there. But then came to my senses, realised there's plenty of house parties to be had in Melbourne. And then I remember the next day watching the news as Sorry, I just, do. I just caught up with that. So you were <laughs> contemplating going to Geelong to find a – leaving Melbourne to find a party in Geelong? Yeah. <laughs> 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 We didn't know our ups from our downs, mate. We just assumed now maybe the universe has flipped on itself and this is the epicentre of action. <laughs> I, I remember watching the news the next night and, of course, they need overlay about the celebrations that are occurring in Geelong and there was a guy standing on the roof of his car, not with his underwear down but with his jeans around his pants still with his underwear on because he was obviously like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to celebrate. Is this what I do? So if we can take it back a bit. So when you started taking an interest in sort of the late 80s, early 90s, um, was there a player that like really captured your imagination? Was it all about Gaz Senior or was there someone else that you really sort of, you know, uh, grew fond of? Charlie, it's funny that I have a kind of, I have a kind of contrary attitude, not an aggressive one. I just always feel like when everyone's doing something, I just like to do the other thing. I always said when I was a kid, everyone had Coca-Cola yo-yos. I just decided a Fanta one was for me and made sure my mum got me that one just because. And so Gaz was very easy. Everyone had five on their back. And because Polly Farmer had worn five, I feel like a lot of kids, their dads were like, well, what a coinkydink. Here you go, have my old Guernsey. And that worked out well for me. It didn't sell how many Guernseys, I think. Geelong made a crucial error. But um, but I had a couple. Uh, Peter Riccardi, I used to like yeah. watching him, number 15. He had a beautiful kick and uh, I just had a soft spot for him. A a beautifully permed soul glow mullet to Riccardi. It was beautiful hair. And uh, I think Robert Scott, I'm starting to realise there might be, I might have a vain connection here, but Robert Scott, because he had the haircut like vanilla ice, he had a quiff, a blonde quiff. And I was like, this guy's awesome. I can't believe you're going to bring, that was what I was going to bring up. The player as an outsider, as a kid that I most liked was Robert Scott because he looked cool. He had a really cool haircut. (laughs) That was when he went to North Melbourne. His haircut wasn't as cool anymore. And it's like, oh, he should have started Geelong. He had the cool haircut. People don't understand. It's a real pivotal moment when everyone's got a mullet and you're like, wow, this guy has changed things up. There is no party out the back. It's all 
on his fringe. This is incredible. I also used to be a big fan of Gavin XL, who was kind of like, would you say he was like the second or third <laughs> uh, forward? He's a kind of he's your he's your prototypical flashy half forward flanker who would pop up every four or five games and maybe kick two or three, and you're like, oh, this guy's just pretty good, and then go missing for the rest of the season. Yeah. I think off memory, he was a really prized recruit. But then as Gary came through and they moved him into the forward line, he was just like, oh, don't worry about it, stick him in the corner. And then he could do that once yeah. every blue moon. I mean, it is a real kind of like, uh, it's just a lux of fortune, isn't it? When you're probably like a, like a highly prized forward recruit, but you also happen to be put in the forward line with a player of the century. You know what I mean? A guy where you're going to build a game plan around, just clear the forward 50 and let this guy go bananas. I imagine there was a lot of gun forwards like recruited to North Melbourne in the late 90s or else like, Fantastic. We're going to do Pagan's Paddock. Everyone get the fuck out of Ford 50. Let Wayne go bananas. <laughs> I mean, people also have to remember in that era, again, like I'm a, I'm a fan of basketball where they'd get Eastern block players and they'd bring them across and you just never knew if they'd be this gun or they're just going to fall apart or whatever. And you think you get a guy from Adelaide, it was like that. They were yeah. like, we've got him from the Stan FL. This... This guy, because you'd hear stories, but then they could be shit ass. They could, after six months, just go, I don't want to be here anymore. I miss Glenelg. Like, it was really, you just recruit these people. You never knew what would happen. I still think that's the case with um, Western Australian players. Like, I think more than any other team, they always talk about in the media the go-home factor. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, yeah. this is a professional sport now. They've been, you know, groomed from the age of 13 or 14 for this career in sport. They've had plenty of time to reconcile with the fact that they may get drafted to a team in an interstate club. I'm always, like, appalled when a player, like, just, like, chucks the sads and won't pull on the boots because he wants to go play in his home state. And, it, oh, look, I have no evidence to back this up, but anecdotally I feel like it happens with Western Australian footballers more than anyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I mean, mate, I, I think this is a very good thing to bring up, especially at this point in time. If the Premier has taught us anything, that Western Australians don't like the rest of this country. They love a lockdown and just leave us the hell out. So maybe there's something to it. Maybe they just grow up telling them, you know, it, it's like the propaganda with the, um, that the British airmen used to be told about the Kaiser in World War One. Maybe they tell us back east what we're like and they just can't <laughs> wait to leave us lepers alone. Now, I'm really fascinated to know as a, a self-confessed contrarian with so many uh, amazing players <laughs> to have worn the, the, the blue and uh, white hoops over the years, is there one player that is your favourite of all time? Wow, that's a very interesting question. I don't know if it's... I don't honestly know if I have one. I mean, I was only thinking about, because I knew I was coming onto this podcast, about that era of premiership wins. And Joel Corey was always the one that I really liked simply because he went about his business and I know nothing about him. I don't know what that it's means. True. Like, um, it's true. I you know, even, to not have him in the media, you, to not know what... I couldn't even tell you what he looked like. <laughs> I mean, I, if I had to describe him to the police, if he mugged me and I had to, well, I wouldn't be able to tell him. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that. I looked him up just before we we're going on because I was like, oh, Joel Corey, what's he doing? And it's very weird. His Wikipedia page reads like it's of the present. It's not of the present day. It's written in about 2006. They're like, oh, he's a great mid midfielder. He knew he knows how to get the ball. I'm like, you're talking about present tense. He's been retired for seven years. So he's, he's that much of a mystery. I don't think anyone's updated his Wikipedia page. But man, he averaged close to 30 touches in like the 08 season. He was a gun. But I don't know if it's that mystique. I just liked, again, that guy away from the spotlight. The, as much as I love Jimmy Bartell, Gary Ablett, those guys are Jets. But it was just he'd just go about his business and not want anything for it in return. I and mean, it is funny, isn't it? I'm kind of similar to you in the sense that 
like everyone, you know, at the Saints will love a Nick Revolt or a Lenny Hayes or whatever, but it's, it takes a real supporter to dig a bit deeper and find a B-side. That's essentially what we're saying, isn't it? Is like, if you're a real supporter, you've got a B-side yes! player. Like, just a, it's like, well, you know, <laughs> I like the old stuff better than the new stuff. I don't, I liked them before they got popular. But it's true. Like, I mean, I, I love all the Saints legends like Winmar and Harvey and, and Revolt and stuff. But there are certain players like David Grant was a halfback flanker who I just always loved in the playing in the 80s and 90s because he just played with this sort of cavalier kind of attitude and was like a high mark, undersized forward or like a really good lockdown defender, but just never really got the plaudits. But it's something psychological about, well, all the attention's going to go to the stars. Maybe I should give some love this way because maybe that will help that player or help the team somehow if I can just spread the adoration of it. It's true, man. You know, in an interview, you want to look interesting. If someone said, what's your favourite film? Shawshank Redemption. They're like, oh, moving on to the next one. <laughs> but, you know, if you can pull out some obscure, like, uh, I, I mean, I like to pull out Gattaca in mind to make me sound more interesting and everyone goes, I don't even know what that is. And I go, exactly. So maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just trying to look interesting in interviews. No, I, there's, a, there's a few players that I think that Geelong had in that kind of Bomber Thompson era too. Like you were so overloaded with stars like Joel Corey, Corey Enright. I mean, even someone like Max Rook, who I doubt many people would remember, but I remember him distinctly because of the 09 grand final. And he was not your best player, but he was such an aggressive little nugget, you know, with the beard and the way he would sort of attack the ball. That's what I remember most about him was – uh, he's just attack on the ball and it's like every team has that kind of role player. I guess it's like a, a pawn, <laughs> essentially. It's a guy who's going to sacrifice his own game to make sure the ball gets out to like Gary Ablett or Mackie or one of your good users, right? Yeah, and I remember Max just had a shock of hair that he would let grow out and he was a real bullish player. There's, you kind of had shoulders that rolled over. And you're right. I mean, you couldn't have really thugs of that time. Like you weren't just – that wasn't just your job, but he had that about him. And I remembered, which makes you wonder the murky area, the possibly, I don't know what happened or whatever, but I remembered he was one of the first players I knew that went to Germany to get some work done. Oh. Like he had a knee problem or something and they went to Germany to have some muscle blood transfusion, uh, whatever it was. So that added to it all. I mean, I just find that fascinating that like, you know, Geelong, when they're sort of doing their budget for the year, are like, well, we've got this very expensive experimental surgery. Do we want to save it for Gaz or Matthew Scarlett or Jimmy Bartel? No, let's send Max Rook. That's where we need to invest. Yeah, but mate, if, if watching uh, kind of Avengers and DC movies has taught us anything. <laughs> he, he may be the beta version. He's the Jason Bourne. They're sending him across. He's, we're like, if he comes back all right, we'll send the good ones over. Yeah. But for now, we'll just see if he comes back in one piece. There's a player too that just used to, um, you know, drive me mental, not just because he was such a good player, but just because of his personality, which was Matthew Scarlett. Like there was something about Matthew Scarlett's personality that um, how do I best describe it? He's like a serial killer emotionless just a dead-eyed you know i'm sure his blood ran cold there was one incident in particular <clears throat> where i think it was um as after we'd lost you know at cadinia park for like the hundredth time in a row or whatever and uh, rob harvey was in his final year of football and matthew scarlett said something to him along the lines of like you should have retired or you know you, you're playing one year too long and i was like <gasps> No one says that to Rob Harvey. It really, like, has put a sour taste. And then, and then the toe poke. Like, then the toe poke happens. So it's like, <laughs> in my mind, 
Like if, if each team has a boogeyman, then Matthew Scarlett is my Geelong boogeyman. Yeah, I mean, everything you said is true, though. I have gotten to like him as a player because he was so unbelievable. But we grew up and we're the same age. He went to St. Joseph's. I went to a public school and it was actually a good mate of mine at the time, got into a punch on with him. And I think got a couple clean hits in, which I used to remind him about when we'd get an older. And I'm like, would you do it now? He's like, there's no way <laughs> after 10 seasons of AFL training, I'm having a go at that guy. But he was in high school. I didn't have any personal interactions with him. I was very much, this may surprise some listeners, I was very much the guy that stood off to the side and talked shit and didn't do anything. <laughs> That's how you become a comedian, my friend. But he yeah, they, he got into some nasty stuff with some mates of mine. So he, he was, um, he was pretty volatile as a teenager, shall we say. Yeah, it's funny. I the, I often say that um, the the Scott brothers went to the other school down the road. I went to the the wealthy Catholic school. They went to the slightly less wealthy Catholic school. But the Scott brothers, they were the year above me, and they were stuff of legend. Like you would come to school on Monday and you'd hear about, did you hear about that part on Saturday? The Scott brothers came and just tore the place apart. Or, or you want to piss him off, he's mates with the Scott brothers. And it was like the craze, man. And everyone was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now I see them do their press conferences and they're such polished media performers. And I'm like, does everyone know that these guys were like teenage, teenage like terrors? <laughs> it's, it's hard to reconcile, isn't it? Because for me, and I went to Belmont High School, public school, we often did sporting things against St. Joseph's, which is a lot of these kids where they came from. Like I think Bartel went to Joey's, Lingy went to Joey's, Scarlett went to Joey's. And it was an all-boys college. And I don't know. We used to play them in basketball and footy and everything. And I I don't know because I didn't go to an all-boys school. But there was something strange. It's like testosterone plus. Whether it's just Lord of the Flies because all you have is men and they – they, they just cut away the boys yeah. and they're just left with the men. Like whether, whether you know, steel sharp and steel. It's just, oh, just, yeah. And these guys that came out that you play footy against, you're like, you are not 16. Like they look <laughs> like they'd already fathered four children. <laughs> so tell me, like in Geelong, I've always been fascinated by how Geelong, um, not just the town, but the, the, the community, the supporter base, view themselves in relation to other Victorian clubs because they are a Victorian club, but they are also an entity unto themselves. Like this, there's always this debate about should Geelong be allowed to play finals at their home ground? And I'm not really sure how I feel about that. But growing up there and going to games and stuff, is there this sort of us against them mentality? And does that then double down when you're playing an interstate team? No, I always felt like interstate teams, I never felt like we had a real grudge match against those teams per se. I mean, West Coast <laughs> just broke our hearts in the 90s. But I always felt like it was very much Melbourne. You know, it's the big smoke. Right. Geelong was the second city. I mean, <laughs> mate, I <laughs> this proves that Tom Harley and what a great guy he is because I saw him at a function probably 2015 and I'd had enough beers that I thought I knew what I was saying <laughs> and enough courage to think he needs to know what I have to say about this. And I talked about how I reckon I said socioeconomic about four times throughout <laughs> my uh, my diatribe towards this poor guy where I said, you don't understand, like having people calling us Sleepy Hollow, having players like John Barnes, I remember he played for us and then we just drive back up the freeway because he didn't want to live in Geelong. He didn't want to do that. People, we, it was hard to, to even recruit people. They didn't want to live in Geelong. Mm. And then this new era comes through of not only kids from our area, but it was a destination point because they could go surfing. They yeah. were selling them Torquay. They were coming down. They were doing this. And then when you win in 07, 
it's like psychologically, you know, Ford had closed down, Shell was packing it up, all our industry was leaving. And then this thing happens and we start to go, oh, we're worthy. Oh, we can do this. We can compete. We're like Melbourne clubs. And it's kind of, it changed your mentality. It changed from thinking we're going to get beaten by a Carlton. We're going to get beaten by a Hawthorne. We're going to get beaten by an Essendon to thinking, oh, we're something. And it's as much as I hate that the city rides on its wins and losses for Geelong, it can change the way a town looks at itself. So the 2007 victory, uh, grand final victory, is instrumental in changing Geelong's self-esteem. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I know it sounds I, – I actually said I enjoy being a Geelong supporter outside of Geelong because I feel like – I can have a healthy relationship with it. I feel the town at times has a very unhealthy relationship with it. The week would go as Geelong would go. If they won, it was a great week for the town. If Mm. they lost, it was a bad week for the town. And it's almost depressive, almost. Um, And and that chip on your shoulder when you are losing and all these Melbourne clubs seem to be successful and beating us. It was just too much weight to carry around. You're like, God, we can't see ourselves as the losers that we constantly think we are. Like when we're losing, I thought we need another option. But then when you're winning, you're like, oh, great, I'll hatch myself to uh, this wagon. I guess it's the, it's the um, you know, there's benefits and there's uh, um, uh, drawbacks from living in the fishbowl. You know, you've got an entire city or, you know, the second city, biggest city in Victoria behind you. But then when things aren't going so well, the focus is all on you. Luckily for you guys, things have been going pretty well for 15 years. And you mentioned Richmond before and, and seeing parallels. And I 100% agree with you, even down to the idea that, you know, Damien Hardwick prior to 2017 was having to, you know, campaign to keep his job. There's the board wanted him out. And that was the same with Bomber Thompson. It's, it's amazing how quickly a club's fortunes or the perception of a club can be turned around because, you know, you talk to, I imagine anyone, like if you talk to a kid born in 2000 now and ask them what they think of Geelong, it's like, well, they're a powerhouse club. But it wasn't always like that, was it? Like there was that period in the 80s and the 90s where you were the chokers. You know, that was kind of Geelong's perception. I mean, do you feel like the sustained success you've had now has erased that? Or in the back of your mind, in the back of a Geelong supporter mind, is there always this kind of fear that, oh, shit, you know, we could go back there. Like the fact that you've, you know, had made so many prelims in the past 10 years but hadn't made a grand final, is that just something that gnaws at you guys? Or do you just look back at your three out of four flags and go, well, that's pretty good. We've done all right in the last 15 years. Yeah. I mean, yes, it gives you a confidence. When I saw between 2010 and 2020, we won the most home and away games but yet only could get one premiership which is hilarious because you think which perspective will I see it from, which is that was a wasted amount of time or, wow, we we got all those premierships. So, I mean, who cares? Um, I don't know. I, I think if we get to the end of this generation, don't win another premiership, have to rebuild, I got the eerie feeling all those old demons will come back. But for now you're a bit like, oh, things are going pretty good. We're doing okay. And we seem to be doing all right. I think when Selwood and Danger retire, yeah, because Selwood really, like, you know, he's captain of the squad, an amazing player. I'm trying to think. I think was his first year 07? I'm not sure if it was, but I think it you was. You know, he, he, I think when he retires, you think it was? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think yeah, so. Yeah, because yeah. he was like, he was your gun junior. That was when everything was clicking for Geelong. That's when Stevie Johnson came good. That's when Gary Ablett became unstoppable. 2007 was like the magic formula. 
Yeah, I remembered Stevie Johnson was an an, an interesting um, example of it because I felt like even before that, like you, you talk to someone from Geelong who's a bit older, and I'm talking my mum's era, they talk about how, and I'm sure footballers everywhere had the run of the place, but in Geelong, you've got the run of the joy, mm-hmm. and it's like you are gods amongst men. And I think with the Stevie J thing, like they didn't they – like he was out for eight weeks just on a punishment of acting like a goose. Like, didn't he? He, well, did, he did his ankle off memory. He was yeah. hard. He jumped a fence, did his ankle. Yeah, but no, you're, you're missing the best bit. He jumped someone's fence, drank their sunscreen, which was sitting on the front veranda, got caught, and then twisted his ankle, <laughs> jumping another fence. That was the thing that <coughs> always gets brushed over with, you know, the transformation of Steve Johnson into Norm Smith medalist is. Hang on, he drank sunscreen once. Are we maybe ignoring the fact that the sunscreen could be responsible for the way his career... I mean, imagine if it turns out that's why he became a Norm Smith medalist because he drank the sunscreen and it gave him some kind of properties, superstar footballing properties. I can't believe that's been forgotten in the annals of time. I've forgotten that, but that is so funny. That is really funny. Um but then, because <laughs> maybe for decades, players could just drink sunscreen willy-nilly and they were fine <laughs> Not go. But then he got that wrap over the knuckles and became the player he became. <laughs> so in the early 2000s, <laughs> in the early 2000s when you've got that list, but, you know, uh, 2005 um, uh, must have been like, you know, the Nick Davis Swans uh, uh, prelim final or elimination final, whatever it was. That must have been like for a lot of cat supporters, like, holy shit, here we go again. So then two years later, or then you have 2006, which is the kind of like real kind of down dip, and then 2007 happens. Is it a case of, like I know talking to Will being a Bulldog supporter, because they had nothing, he's had nothing for 56 years, not even a grand final appearance, and he got to 2016. Even though the Bulldogs have kind of underperformed since then, he's fine. Because he saw a flag and he hadn't seen anything prior to that. Do you reckon if you just won 2007, you would be still okay with that in 2021? Or is it the fact that you won two more after that sort of made you think, well, we can maintain this. We can be like a Hawthorne. We can get one every three years. Yeah, I. Uh, to be honest, either which way, and this maybe, I don't know what this says about me, but I would have, if we just had 07, it would have been unbelievable. That would have been just cool. I can hang my hat on that. I can say I saw a premiership. And if you do remember, I th- I'm trying to think, surely we're not the first ones to ever use that phrase, but it was the first time I remembered the concept, keep a lid on it, keep a lid on it, keep a lid on it. Like remember the, the expectations for 07, we kept, which is a very Geelong thing too. No, nah, don't say it's going well. Just don't mention it. Just keep going. And, um, and yeah, if that was it, so be it. Um, this, this strange continued... Uh, well, success is is weird. It right. still is weird because those formative years, as they always say, it's those movies and those songs of when you are, what, 11 to about 14 that will stick with you for the rest of your life. And that was the period of losing. So I'm not sure if that will ever go. And I guess too, like, you know, the very following year, 2008, you lost the grand final that you were the raging favourites to win. So there must have been like a moment of kind of like panic. It's like, holy shit, like, did we get ahead of ourselves? Or that went out of the box. And Stewie Jew and his stupid left foot, and <laughs> I, I sat in the outer. I watched all of Hawthorne get presented their medals. Like we've got to remember this for next year. And then when I got to the end, I was like, "Why am I remembering it? 
<laughs> the players should be doing this, not me. Stewie Jew and his stupid left foot, which is also the sequel to the Daniel Day-Lewis classic, My Left Foot. <laughs> <laughs> but then again... I mean, as opposed to Daniel Day-Lewis, though, he put on about an extra 50 kilograms for that role, I think, Stewie. <laughs> There's another parallel, though, with Richmond, isn't there? Because Richmond win 2017, don't even make the grand final in 2018, and then consolidate in, in, in 2019 and, and 2020. So the Cats sort of spaced out their flags a bit more. Uh, you know, you, ha- you had the 2009 grand final, which, you know, I, I didn't want to talk about it, but I, I guess there's no way of avoiding it. So that game, were you at that grand final? No, I'd just gotten back from overseas. I had gone on a uh, – I was in Edinburgh – I was performing there at the Fringe Festival. I then met up with my girlfriend then in New York. We broke up, continued to travel together for a few weeks. I got back and found out Geelong had gotten into the grand final. It was a tumultuous time, Charlie. (laughs) And I couldn't get tickets to the game because I'd been away for so long and no one had them for me. So I watched it at my mate's pub. And because of uh, where my head was at, I then drank heavily and had to be taken home in a cab at about... Six o'clock or something. It was quite frightening. There's a lot of parallels in our stories, Dave, because I also was drinking heavily and taken home by friends, but for completely different reasons. Now, my impression of that game, I'm not, sh- <laughs> I'm not sure if you've rewatched it, um, but being at the game and even seeing the replays, which I've been able to stomach only very recently, is the Saints were all over the Cats. Like, that was the season where we'd only lost two games to the year. We were, that was our 2007 season. That was our breakout season. And... It just, we could not kick straight. We could not even kick a goal. Like there's a moment in the second quarter where Stephen Milne is running into an open goal. He's about 30 metres out and he decides to dribble it along the ground. It doesn't even make the fucking distance. It's like something from a comedy. Like the ball literally just stops in the goal square. And I can't remember, Mackie or someone just like tidies it up and runs it out of defence. So the whole first half of that game, I was unreasonably calm because I was sitting there and I was like, well... We're on top of them in all the key stats. Like we're, you know, we're first of the ball, you know, we're winning contested possession, we're, we're winning uncontested possession. We just need to kick straight. That's the, once we get that. But then as the day wore on and we kept missing and kept missing and the gap got closer and closer and closer, that's when the tension started rising in me. I also, because our, our mate Limo had organized me my ticket, so I was sitting in the Channel 10 area. I had George Denikian, of all people, sitting behind me, tapping me on the shoulder every time St Kilda missed a goal and saying, you can't miss goals in grand finals, mate. You can't. And I'm like, I get it, George Denikian. I'm aware of how football works. Denikian. <laughs> But do you, oh. do you feel like that was that was a grand final that the Cats, I don't want to say stole, but do you feel like that was a game that you were lucky to have won? Yes. Good. Okay. <laughs> That's all I want to hear. Interview's I, over. Goodbye. <laughs> I, I didn't know whether that where that answer would go to, whether you'd go, right, so it was pure luck, <laughs> or that would give you at least some comfort. Because you'd beaten us in that round 14 clash where it's the only time in history where two undefeated sides had played each other that late in the season. Mm. And one of the best home and, away ga- home and away games you'll ever see. In fact, if that had been the grand final, you know, result aside, but just in terms of the intensity of that game, I, I actually, and this is a weird thing to say, but I actually can't remember if I was there or not. I just, like, the, I, but the game, I know each beat of that game so well. I've seen it so many times. I feel like I was there, but then part of me thinks maybe I wasn't. Maybe I've just watched it or, or I was and I've just watched it so many times in the replay. But that is 
Like you could not script a better game of football. It is just like two heavyweights going toe to toe right up until the fu- like the final thirty seconds of the game. But even having like lost that game, even having won that game in round fourteen, and thinking, okay, well, there's only eight rounds to go, and then we play finals. Part of me was like, fuck, we shouldn't have lost it. I mean, we shouldn't have won it. We wanted to. You want to lose that game. You want to get the, your opponent's measure, so you know what you're coming up against if you play them again in the finals. Yeah, but also that that football. And I'm sounding like an old man now, but because now the the ball moves very quickly, but there's no scores. You know, quite often you'll watch over the last few seasons. It's a game of where the ball pings to that fifty, stops. The defense is so good, it just spits back out, swings back heavily, but then the same thing, it's just going back and forth like a table tennis game. Mm. You watch those games, the ball moves so quickly mm. and there's a really good amount of scores, not like we were talking about back in the early 90s, but it's really fast football, yeah. really good. And those two sides of those eras too matched up really well. If you looked at the midfields, you know, you have Revolt mm. on and Scarlet, you know, just the way – they all match up. It's like so like Tantal, like Bartel versus Hayes. There's just all these like amazing sort of contests to be had in that game. I just would have loved like if it had been like the West Coast Sydney rivalry where you got one and then we got one, and then we could all be friends and we have a begrudging respect. But we didn't get one, <laughs> and you guys got three. And so now I'm doing this fucking podcast oh. to sort of rake over the coals and try and work out what I've been doing with my life. It's now you talked about Stevie Mill, and I mean there's a, a man that. Most other uh, people love to hate. And I, I do remember if it wasn't that goal you were talking about, to me, I thought he was on the mark. But then I remember him jackknifing his foot into the ground. Like he went for a kick and it just went and his foot just hit the ground before it connected with the ball. It could have been that kick you were talking about where Mackie collected it. Couldn't have been happier, mate. I really couldn't have been happier. As a St Kilda fan, maybe like you were asking about with Scarlett, what's yeah. the relationship like with Milne? Oh, look, I mean, look, as, in, as a human being, I'm not sure uh, that we'd be great mates. Um, but as a player, uh, yep. you know, you love having that kind of pest in your side because he seemed to thrive on aggravating the opposition and the opposition supporters. And I think that, you know, it's all well and good to have a play- – like Stevie Johnson is probably a similar type player in that, you know, seems to sort of like – loves a big moment, you know – Give me the ball, I'll have a ping from wherever. Occasionally it comes off, occasionally it comes a cropper. But I uh, I loved that team. Like that 09, 2009, 2010 list that we had, I just can't fathom how we couldn't win a flag because we had a star on every line of the ground. Like there was Ross Lyons, I think his coaching philosophy is you give me five superstars and I can build a team around that. I'll just get you a bunch of role players, teach them a game plan. But we had more than that. Like I, I, I just think it's such a... It's staggering to me that we couldn't have won a, won a flag with that list. I mean, I think maybe, you know, the, our top, the difference between our, our, our best player and our worst player was probably bigger than, the gap was wider than any other team on the list. But geez, our top like seven or eight players were, were really, really good players. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. And like I said, this is, <laughs> I don't know how you're feeling about all of this. I'm trying to be as gracious no, as possible because everything that you mentioned, even at the stop of this podcast to now, it's true. Our lists mirrored each other, not so much in player for player, but pound for pound talent. Both of those lists, it was it was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm finding the same thing is sort of happening again with a different team. It's happening with the Demons now because the Demons and the Saints have been in the wilderness for so long and they've both come good round about the same time although you know the demons have taken a backward step in the last couple of years but i think that that is all i'm basing my kind of jealousy on is the fact that 
um, I hate people of <laughs> equal standing to myself. I'm an incredibly bitter and ungenerous person when it comes to opportunity. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Like I think maybe, you know, when I look at a, a, a club like an Essendon or a Hawthorne or a West Coast, you know, that just – I can't even imagine what it's like to barrack for a, a club, you know, with multiple flags and a history of success and on and off the field. Whereas Geelong prior – to your, you know, your last 15 years, I thought maybe we're sort of kindred spirits here, you know, we're sort of misfits. Geelong, it's been a long time since I've won a grand final. But then to see you, you know, race away, it is that bridesmaid analogy. It's like, well, Geelong's found someone to fall in love with. <laughs> They're happy. Everyone's happy for Geelong. When's it going to be St Kilda's time? Yeah. Is there not some fairness in the world? <laughs> is it not? <laughs> I mean, I've mentioned this before, but, you know, two guys, one cup. The premise of the podcast is that Will and I both barracked for teams that only had one flag and then in the very first season of doing the show the fucking bulldogs win a flag not only <laughs> torpedo our concept but probably ruin my friendship with will because now that's one less thing we have in common <laughs> i mean i having done that the podcast you know we did uh, the grand final podcast mm. which chamber was having far too much fun at my expense for geelong and we got Waleed on. And talking to Waleed, it's so funny because it's it's so similar. We've already talked about it, but with Richmond, yeah, it's a similar thing. It's so weird psychologically this battle between like I'm I'm looking at you now and thinking, yeah, it the scars are just there deep, <laughs> and you and it's just <laughs> they continue. It feels like the, the scars get worse. I don't know. It doesn't heal over if you don't have that release of a premiership. Well, it's, it's, you know, I've talked to other people in the show, like, you know, Narrowly Meadows is a, is a Freo supporter and, you know, asked her, what, is it, what does it say about you psychologically that you invest so much time in this team that is, has given you nothing? Like, is that a failing on your part or is it a failing on Fremantle's part? Because if this was, in a, you know, if this was a, a toxic relationship, then you've got the opportunity to leave, but you're choosing to stay. So maybe you're the problem, Narrowly. <laughs> I didn't say it like that, but... Yeah. Victim blaming. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> But I do uh, honestly like ask that of myself. You know, my wife, um, uh, she's Scottish and so she came over here not really having much interest in AFL. And, you know, she kind of humors me, I guess, in my love for the Saints. But there is an element of her, especially in the last 10 years where we've had nothing to, you know, uh, to be that happy about where she's like, just stop following them. Like, we'll pick someone else. Like, this seems like a, an easy solution. But, you know, when you're pot committed, when you've picked that club – and, you know, it's been – I'm 40 – I turned 44 this year, Dave, and I've been following them since I was almost seven years old. I reckon I went to my first game. So what's going to happen? What am I going to do? It's, uh, it'd be like me getting a divorce. Who's going to marry me, Dave? I've invested too much time in this relationship. <laughs> I can't go to a singles bar and meet another team. It's – I remember as – I was probably 12, 13, and – it may surprise some listeners to know that there are people in Geelong who don't go for Geelong. And I remember there was the family, the Davies family who uh, I grew up with and Kerry, their, uh, the oldest sister, I remember she saying to me, when has Geelong ever been good? And it was like, you know, you won back in 63 and she was a Collingwood fan. Uh, and she's like, you know, Collingwood, like, you know, we won 89, uh, when was it? 91 or whatever it was. And it's like, you know, why? And I remembered thinking that, like, and I had no leg to stand on. I was like, yeah, I, get, I don't know from those 60s premierships, I don't think we were any good until mm. the late 80s and then we didn't win anyway. And I couldn't articulate it as a young man and I probably can't even now where you just said, well, I'm just in. Yeah. Like if you're going to base it on that, 
then fans become free agents. We just jump ship every which way. And maybe there's a little bit in your head that just makes you go, this is my lot in life, like mm. what you're explaining. And maybe you want that story where you're on the news and they go, here's Charlie Corson, he's 96. He hasn't seen a premiership win, but he saw one today. And you can just be like, it was worth it the whole time. <laughs> like, you know? I've got like uh like a cataracts on both my eyes. Wouldn't have seen it a second of it, but I heard it and it sounded pretty bloody good with a uh, young uh, 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 Jack Revolt Jr. or whatever his name is, Nick's son, James Revolt. Uh, so- no, you'd be like Futurama. You'd just be a jar on a robot. You'll be fine. <laughs> so is there, a, is there a memory to do with the Cats, uh, a happy memory that stands out more than any other? Is it the 2007 Grand Final or is it something else? <clears throat> That's a good question. Um 2007 was probably, yeah, that was an amazing time. I mean. You almost went to a party in Geelong. It was that good. <laughs> you almost caught a train to Geelong. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's never happened before. And I guess it probably won't happen again. But, um, yeah, because I, I, I talked about it on your grand final, I think, episode where I remember 95 when we got flogged by Carlton and we went out at a mate's house and we just kicked a kick at halftime and then just stayed out there. And it's a very disappointing feeling at 15 years old that you're like, what's the point in going back in? So I would have to think 2007 would be. That would have to be. Yeah, I can't think of another because there's home and away games, there's games you pull it out, things like that. But that feeling of like, oh, this is actually happening. Is and <laughs> I mean, I was so 2007, I was 27 years old, and I, I really took advantage over that over the following 12 hours, I would say, Charlie. <laughs> what about the 2011? I mean, that was kind of a, a grand final that you're underdogs, it was um, uh, Chris Scott's first year as coach. Was that, I mean, um, it doesn't have the same kind of relief as the drought breaker, but that was a grand final you weren't expected to win with a new coach, that must have been pretty satisfying. Yeah, I said I was sitting there at Limo again and got us tickets. So I was watching there next to a mate of mine who was a Collingwood supporter. And George, was George Danikian uh, sitting behind you? <laughs> Just the name George Danikian. I haven't thought of him for a while. That is great. <laughs> I, man, and I remember thinking because I'd gone through the whole gamut. 07, I'd, uh, I'd partied for far too long. 09, I then... <laughs> I'd put myself into a hole far too quickly. And I remember at 11, I wasn't, I remember thinking it was a much, for me, a much calmer moment, a moment of like, oh, this is quite right. nice. And I took it in, in, uh, I wouldn't say a sober um, head, but like, a, you know, I was there, I, I was much more measured. I wasn't overcome with either emotion or the weight lifting off me. It was a very, it was a very pleasant feeling to go through. Like it was almost like <laughs> if each one is some kind of drug trip, the first one was almost too much. The middle one, I, I couldn't handle it myself, but this one was almost like you found a psychedelic that made you open up and go, oh, yeah, this is really great. This is a, the sensation that I would, probably should have gotten at the start. It felt, it felt it was a very nice victory. It must be so wonderful to have like premierships in your lifetime to choose from, like not just one flag. <laughs> like you can go, well, 2007, oh, no, 2007, oh, actually 2009. Like do you feel like... Is this is this something that uh, would it would go away? Would it, how many like years of like uh, being down the bottom of the ladder would it take to erase this kind of perspective that you have right now? Would it take like a calamitous fall 
or are you a nervous supporter where, you know, three, three, four years outside the finals will get you nervous again? Yeah, I think I, I'd like to think right now that, yeah, it could last me a lifetime, but I don't think that's the case. I mean, I've got a fair few mates oh. Melbourne supporters and I've seen them in a hole. And I think if you had five plus years of really rubbish, like games that you're watching, I think it would be hard to take. I mean, mind you, Melbourne, if you think about that, so what was it, 87, 2000, any other recent grand finals I can think of in Melbourne? But, I mean, there is a decade there of just humiliation. Like, if, if you went through that, yeah. do you think – I mean, you're, like, even as a Saints fan, like, if you went through – you've been through some – but do you think you've, you've had it as bad as Melbourne? Um, yeah, like, over the period, we've had it as bad as Melbourne. Like, when I, start, when I first started following football in the 80s, like, that was – our record setting wooden spoon run where we won more wooden spoons than any other team in history. I think we're still like have twice as many wooden spoons as the next team. And then the last 10 years was kind of like, even though we were down the bottom of the ladder, I don't know, some part of me was deluded. I was still living off the fumes of the Ross Lyon era. I was like, Oh, well, you know, like we're just in a rebuild, but I think it was around about 2017, no, 2018, so the year after Nick Revolt retired, we started the season so badly and only won four games for the year. And I do remember that was the most recent time where I seriously considered not following football anymore. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like I so invested and I gave them like, I gave them eight years grace from the last grand final. Eight years to get your shit together and you haven't done it. And I remember there was one game in particular. It was like a, our first ever Good Friday match against North Melbourne. And it was our first Friday night match in about six years because we just didn't draw crowds. And it was the worst standard of football <clears throat> from both sides that I'd ever seen. And I'd just been made a St Kilda ambassador. And I was like, I mean, what do I do? This is an awkward position. The club wants me to promote them and like tweet about them and stuff. But... That was fucking garbage, and I want to say that that was garbage, but I've just been put in this position. I didn't know what to do, so I just didn't say anything. But I'm happy I'm happy that I stuck with them. I think that every Saint supporter I know always is like, oh, that fruit will taste so much sweeter for all the suffering we've had. Yeah, I'm sure it would, but I could also have just like skipped the suffering and gone straight to the sweet fruit. You know, I don't think it makes me a better supporter or a more like genuine supporter having suffered. I don't think any, speak to any Hawthorne supporter. I don't feel like, you know, they feel like they've lost anything barracking for one of the most successful clubs in the past 50 years. Yeah, and I feel when you are successful, so like even for Geelong, I remember people saying, oh, you're coming out of the woodwork. Look at you guys, you're coming out of the woodwork. And when I could say to them, I was born there, I grew up there, I felt the weight of all those losses. Everyone goes, oh, okay, okay, you're fine. And I felt like if you jump ship to a successful side, because, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I guess you could pick someone else from the bottom eight and go, no, 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 I think these guys will get their shit together before the Saints or whatever. But it just... I'd find that hard. I would find that so hard if, if you jumped on another team and then you went, oh, I just started going for them for the last three years. And people would go, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Like that, that would sting so much more than, you know, you waiting it out. <clears throat> well, it's, I had Alex Williams uh, on the show talking about uh, GWS. And he was a Richmond supporter for, you know, his entire life. And then in 2016, I think, switched across – to GWS and the following year, the Tigers win the flag. And so like, you know, he literally got off the bandwagon just as it started rolling. But you talk to him about it. So he followed Delidio, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
But his sort of approach is like, well, yeah, I was. He grew up in WA. He was a Richmond supporter in the sense that you had to have a team, you know. So he picked Richmond, but he never felt any kind of like affinity, um, you know, for uh, for for Richmond. It was actually I got it wrong. He didn't. He got on GWS from when they were formed because he'd moved to Sydney. He was doing drama school and he heard the AFL is forming a new team, and he was like, okay. Great. Like, this seems like a good base for me to jump on. Like, fresh start, new city, new team, go for it. And now he's the most dyed in the wool, one eyed GWS supporter going around. So, I think that, you know, if I was to switch, it wouldn't be, well, I'm going to barrack for Melbourne now <laughs> because that doesn't, you know, I'm just swapping one dead horse for another. But, you know, I can sort of understand that philosophy <laughs> of like, all right, there's a new team that's starting up where I am. I mean, it's a question that I normally leave for the end of the show, but, you know, you sort of uh, took us down that direction anyway. But if for some reason the Cats were to fold, there was no Geelong, there was no women's team, there was nothing, do you think that you would find another team to support? Yeah, I think it's more fun to have skin in the game. Um, and I have thought about this, and I know it's a cliche because everyone says it's your second second team, but then... For me, because the Western Bulldogs, I'm like, well, geographically, they'd be the next stop. And <laughs> so, be a, so, a kinship to the West. I've thought about this. So, Dave, you pick your teams by looking at the V-line map and saying, well, in a direct line from Geelong to Melbourne, I could be, well, if I go ahead a bit north, it could be Essendon, but no, I think the Bulldogs are a more direct route from Geelong. Yeah, until Little River can get themselves an AFL team, that's where I'm heading. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> no, I just think that the geography, and it's and maybe that comes about with Geelong because I've noticed friends in Melbourne where they go, well, I go for this side, and it's not a thing in Melbourne to go. You obviously go for St Kilda because of geography, but so many friends are just like, no, you, you almost pick a Melbourne team and then you stick with a Melbourne team, and no one seems to batter an eyelid that that's what you did. But it's weird in Geelong because I'm like, no, I was born there. There is no other reason. So geography seems like the only solid reason I could put behind going for a team so that's exactly it i would go zone one if i can't do that zone two and just keep heading out until i found the team anecdotally if you had to sort of guess you know from the schools you went to and stuff what percentage of people barrack for the cats in geelong is it like 90 percent? is it higher no i think it'd actually be a bit lower i think okay i i do remember a decent amount of conversations with mates in high school who because this is the thing. You go for Geelong, great. You're all on board. This is all happening. If you go for another team, you've had to die on that hill most days of your life. So you are backing them in heavily. So when you got mates who go for Carlton or go for Essendon, it would be mainly, it'd probably be 85% now that I think about it. It'd probably be about that. But the 15% that don't, they, they have to fight tooth and nail. And one of the um, uh, best things I reckon about uh, Geelong uh, is the rivalry you guys have with the Hawks. What's your personal feeling on the, the Cats-Hawks history? Do you hate Hawthorne like most Geelong supporters or do you love the fact that you have this kind of really famous storied rivalry? No, I hate them. You hate them? <laughs> I, I hate them. Like I, I, I see them as privileged kids. I see them as, because also it's the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. In my mind's eye, that's where all the private schools are. There's a full chip on our shoulder. I'm fully aware that Geelong has Geelong Grammar and Geelong College, but still in my mind, it is just privileged people from a privileged area with a privileged club. And I, I it's just, 
because they talk about Collingwood, but Collingwood has this history of working class people of like, you know, it's us against them and they're getting their hands dirty. And you're like, I can, I can feel that, you know, we, we, we had the Ford factory, uh, we got Shell, we got, there was a lot of industry in Geelong that has since packed up, but that's, that's what we felt like it was like in the eighties. And then you've got these guys who feel like, you know, they're like your landlord coming through going, oh, times are tough. Can I have the rent? And you're like, go fuck yourself. Like you just mm. don't. <laughs> it, 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 it was always like that. It was, it's, um, yeah, I, I, you can be in a WhatsApp group conversation with footy fans and if one of them's a Hawthorne fan, you know, they're always going to come, what about this win? What about this win? <laughs> and it's just overbearing. Oh, my God. Go back and listen to the Emma Race interview. At one point, I asked her, like, you know, do you have any regrets or, you know, what's your lowest moment? She's like, oh, I wish I'd celebrated 2015 more. <laughs> like, I wish, I'd, I wish I'd soaked up that victory more. And I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, it's just, it's, it's staggering the kind of privilege that that club has enjoyed in their lifetime. Um, Dave, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, uh, thank you so much uh, for doing this show. Tell me, um, we had you on the grand final show. I think you were very gracious to Waleed and, and Richmond in general. Um, but looking mm. forward, uh, you've had some retirements. What are your predictions, uh, delusional or realistic, for the Cats in 2021? Mate, it is so weird now to be a Cat supporter because of almost the privilege that we have had. We win home and away games. We know that now... There's always a lot of chat about we win those games because we're playing at home at Cadenia Park and that kind of accounts for naught once the finals hit and we've got to play at the MCG. There is something about that. Uh, we, <clears throat> I don't know what that element is. It's funny now, you, as a Geelong supporter, you're almost, I know this This will come across as extremely privileged, you almost think it's a fait accompli, we're going to make the, the top eight. Now, how the fuck will we go in the finals? That's the kind of mentality where you're at. And you're like, all right, it'll count once we hit that. So, yeah, I mean, yes, we had some retirements, but I still think a strong side. I, I don't know how to get that next. I mean, if it does happen this season, it'll be so sweeter because we have slowly but surely in the finals gotten better and better to the point where we made the grand final. But we got beaten by, I don't know, the better side, but definitely a better player by Dusty. And then you're just yeah. hoping that that next one can come over. I don't know what that element is because it's always like, I mean, A, we could do with a really good Ruckman, but then it's that mental thing. I don't know what that is. Well, you know, Jeremy Cameron, uh, Sean Higgins, <laughs> that's got to help a little bit, doesn't it? Well, it's exactly. Like when you talk about retirements, I mean, yes, the guys that came out and then the guys that came in, you're like, yeah, well, we're fine like that. But they are. I, I don't know, mate. Like it's, it's, it's honestly, they're little things that they got to tweak, not huge things. You know, it's like we need X. It's yeah. like, I don't know what that is behind the scenes. It's also, I think, you know, you sort of mentioned it in the grand final show and you sort of touched on it just then. It is also that thing of, you know, Geelong may very well be the second best team in the competition, but the fact of the matter is, you know, there is a Richmond team out there that could win another one next year. Like I don't really, I don't really see how, you know, a huge drop off happening for Richmond. It'd be all mental if it is maybe, you know, Dusty just gets, you know, bored of, of winning Norm Smiths and, you know, it's dominating games, but you know, they were awesome. I, I actually thought, you know, of we, we do that grand final show every year. Normally it's live and uh, we tend to like burn the, the, the supporter of the losing team when they get to stage. But I actually thought that it was hard to roast you too much because you saw what we all saw, which is like, 
Well, there was a once-in-a-generation player on the field. We couldn't get a, a hand on him. And when he decided he was going to win the game, then he was going to win the game. Yeah, no, I only talked with uh, a, like a, a guy I know. I bumped into him yesterday, a Richmond supporter, and we talked about it. And I said, I know. First half, some stupid mates were texting me going, this is like yours. And I thought, that's really bad form, texting in the yeah. first half. And I, I remember in 2007, I'm like, don't text me in the first half. It's really bad form. And and then just that goal at the end, and it could have been a second. Uh, yeah. And it was like, oh no, this is not over. This is well and truly not over. And yeah. that's going to stick around. Interesting with Danger because I'm like, he's such. He is a once in a generation player, but I'm guessing he's getting even more worried about not winning. He's got to be. Well. It was something quite symbolic, wasn't it? That last goal that Dusty kicked from the boundary line, the way that the player he shrugged off to to kick that goal was danger. It just felt like, oh, geez, like there is not. I mean, I guess it's not a passing of the torch or changing the guard because, you know, Dusty's been an established superstar for a while. But it sort of felt like, well, you got Geelong's best player and you got Richmond's best player going head to head. And the Richmond player just totally torched him. <laughs> you know, like I think it kind of reflected the contest as a whole. Look, while I, and this shows you how magnanimous he is, when I was talking, when we caught up at a cafe, he said, look, to be honest, because I said Danger wasn't doing a lot. And I understand why in the last two quarters he wasn't just thrown into the thick of it. And he said, well, if he did, that would have unlocked our back line because we didn't have to concentrate on him. And then that would have made it worse. And I was like, yes and no, it wasn't looking good. So wouldn't you just put that guy on the front line? I mean, your back line doesn't do anything if you get it in the middle and you get it to our forward line. They're not touching it, are they? And it was a really – that was really strange. And I don't know if that then pushes a guy like him further and harder because I know he pushes himself quite hard or psychologically that pulls him back a bit. Well, it'll be exciting to see what happens regardless in 2021. Dave, thanks so much for doing the show. Thanks, Charlie. We are two guys, one car.